Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. All right, welcome back to The Educated Home Buyer, where our goal is to help you buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through home ownership and financing. With me, Josh Lewis, mortgage professional, expert, all things finance. I mean, no, we can't really go there, but uh, welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for having us back, Jeb. We are really, both both of us, screaming in on two wheels here uh, this week, trying to do 9,000 things here before the show starts. I didn't even have my light on. I'm sitting here in the dark, for goodness sake. No, it, it often works like that. So, um, yeah, so it's, you know, trying to get everything settled before we go live and talk for two hours. So, for those of you who are new to the show, we do this every week. Uh, typically every week uh, for two hours, answering your questions with regards to mortgage, real estate, some economics, some, you know, what are our favorite hamburger spots? I mean, it can go a lot of different directions, but we appreciate you being here. We appreciate the support. So what's happened over the last week, Josh, we're going to talk about interest rates. Inventory is obviously increasing in a lot of markets. That is the hot topic for many people out there at the moment especially the people that want to call crashes and whatever. Hey, look, we told you inventory was going to increase and this was going to be, yeah, it, it is, it, this is good. This is healthy stuff. This is great for the housing market that I think a lot of us, even real estate agents want to see a more balanced market, more inventory coming on the market here locally. We're up just shy of 2000 active properties in Orange County. So we're at 1983. Last week we were just short of 1800. So it's about a 10% increase in property week over week, uh, you, you know, using the same day for that metric. Here in Huntington Beach, we were at 129 today. Last week, 133. But during the week, I saw inventory as high as 140 something. So properties are still coming on the market. They're still going into escrow. Nothing is changing on that front. But what I what I will say is there is some slowing in the market. Um, and, and let's be clear on what that means, guys. Don't just read the headline. Don't just listen to that, cancel out and go. Jeb said it was slowing. It's going to, you know, everything's changing. It is changing, but we haven't seen major changes at the moment. Slowdown just means buyers are taking a couple of more days to put an offering on a property. An example, you know, a really good example, buyers that have been kind of on the sidelines for the last couple of weeks, if you will, kind of took a break from the market, called me on a property that they saw. We went and took a look at it. They said, what do you think it's worth? Eh, it's priced about right. Why, is, why isn't it selling? Well, maybe, you know, this or that or whatever, been on the market like a week, um, <laughs> a week. And we had the conversation, called the agent, no offers yet. By the time we got our offer together, submitted it over. And granted, we were above the asking price on our offer, uh, made a strong offer. The other uh, offer had come in or another offer had come in rather, and it was all cash. We were actually a little bit higher than that offer, but they took the all cash offer just because it was a shorter term. It was really, really clean. Um, so just because it's taking a little bit more time doesn't mean it's entirely different, right? It's still competitive. It's still moving along, but know your market, know the inventory, know what's going on. That's going to help us. But Josh is going to talk about rates because that is one of the factors that's that's 
creeping in that that's creating you know i'll quote unquote issues with affordability and some price points um which is causing you know inventory to rise but keep in mind it's also a time of year when inventory does rise so this isn't completely out of the norm to see inventory go up it just i think it's a surprise to a lot of people just because we haven't seen inventory in so long that you know it's starting to come to market and people are going whoa things are you know it's a big shift it is a shift, but stay calm, stay cool. I'll turn off the ringer on my phone while Josh updates us on rates. Hey, maybe I should find my phone and do the same so it doesn't bug us. But no, in terms of interest rates, they just continue to to leak out a, a little bit worse, a little bit worse, a little bit worse. Um, the numbers that you see in the headlines, I saw some crazy numbers. Fortune Magazine posted something that the average rate was 9.875%. On and what? Wh whoever, whoever was <laughs> writing the article pulled something, didn't know what they were reading and thought they were going to get the, uh, the, the scoop on, on rates going through the roof. Um, and it was just silly, but a lot of the stuff, consider what you are seeing. Much of what shows up in your Google feed is actually advertising. Um, for those of you who are on the right of the spectrum and may see Fox news articles popping up in their news feed, Fox news owns a company called credible credible does mortgages. So magically, whenever there is an article on Fox news about mortgage rates, it's basically a credible advertisement to direct you into their, their call center and generate revenue. Um, so it's not an actual number. Um, there's a few different indexes out there. None of them are perfect. The Freddie Mac primary mortgage market survey is always a week behind. It will come out tomorrow, but that's the average rate on all loans purchased by Freddie Mac over the last week. So it's always, when rates are going down, it always comes out and says rates are higher than they are. And when rates are going up, it always comes out and says rates are lower than they actually are. We like the Optimal Blue Mortgage Market Index. You guys can actually search that and look at it yourself. It breaks it out into different loan types, conventional, VA, FHA, jumbo. Um, and on the conventional loans, you can even kind of break out different credit tiers because obviously someone with a 660 credit score is going to get a much different rate than someone with a 780 credit score. So that's a super cool tool to use. But in real terms, what does that look like today? I actually, let's, uh, let's do a quick share screen because I wanted to show you something. I'll throw the link in the, uh, in the chat for those of you guys who are, are looking for it. Perfect. So I want to show this uh, up here. So this is uh, is the, the bond chart. You don't need to care about the candlesticks. The reason I want to show this, this downtrend here in bond prices means rates are going up. No duh, Josh. We know rates are going up. From here to here is about a half percent. And then from here to I can't here, see your, uh, your I'm, on the, there you go. I'm on the wrong, I'm on the wrong screen pointing. So from this first arrow to the second arrow is a little over a half percent from the next one is about three eighths of a percent. The only reason why I showed you those arrows is this is essentially a straight line down. But at this first green arrow, we had one, two, three, four, five days where the market tried to recover. And we've talked about this. We're not going to see, you know, uh, a shift or a turn in the market, but we would expect that we would have already seen a couple of retracements before the bearish sentiment takes back over. But that's four or five days, boom, another half percent. And then we have one, two, three, four, five, six days, boom, bearish sentiment takes over. And then we saw this week, tried to claw out a bottom one, two, three good days. It didn't even get to the fourth day. So big picture, um, if you like the rate you see, lock it because it's probably not going to be there tomorrow. You know, we've had a few. We locked a client last Friday and then Monday and Tuesday were better. 
Um, it's a risk you have to take, but you're really just going to see a few days in here where where rates are better. We are still in a bearish market. Um, you know, we can talk about when we see that changing. You know, uh, in terms of what's going to move the market uh, to better interest rates, not back to the old interest rates, but better than where they are today is seeing inflation numbers moderate. And we're likely to see that through June, July. We have some really hot inflation figures that will fall off for last year and be replaced by lower figures this year. Um, so we may see the market go, oh, hey, look, uh, inflation's coming down and see some improvement. But then we have a couple more hot months come on. So it's probably going to be October or so before we see inflation moderating. And I don't mean going from these 8 9% reads down to 4%. I mean down to 7 and then hopefully to 6 and hopefully to 5 And sometime middle of next year, if we're back in the 4% range for inflation, the market will have concluded, hey, that was a blip there in terms of supply chains, COVID, war, all that fun stuff. But until we see that, until you see month over month, multiple months, not just one blip month, um, probably three consecutive months of inflation coming down, we're going to be looking at higher rates. You know, Jeb and I were talking before we came on here. I want to throw this up. Um, if you're listening to on the podcast, it won't uh, do very well for you. But for those of you watching at home, interest rates today. So important thing to remember, these are zero points, zero lender fees. And this is for your best qualified borrower. Big down, great credit score above 740. The interesting thing you're going to note here is whether we're talking high balance loans or standard balance loans, the interest rates are the same. So we've got 5.125, whether it's standard balance or high balance. Usually it's about an eighth of a percent higher for our high balance. On the 15 year, I'm sorry, I, co I copied this and didn't get these updated, but this uh, 4.625 on the 15 year, but same thing, whether it's it's high balance or or standard balance, FHA, VA, same thing, 4.625 standard balance, high balance, and the FHA and VA um, are identical. So the, really the only thing that we're seeing that you really have much hope of, of getting under 5% right now, jumbo loans, which are harder to qualify, generally require bigger down payments, um, 5% with zero points, 4.625 with, with one point with our best price lenders as of today on the jumbo. Also wanted to mention, we talked on the podcast, and then we also talked on the show last week, a little bit about uh, hybrid adjustable rate mortgages. If we believe that rates in the next three, five years are going to come back down, um, then a great way to avoid paying the high rates is looking at a hybrid adjustable that's fixed for five years, seven years, 10 years. So looking at that, our best price lender is a portfolio lender. They hold their loans. They make their own rules. They're 30 year. And again, uh, interesting quirk about them. They will only do loans above the standard balance. So we would have to look at a different lender if you're looking at a standard balance loan in a lower priced area. But as long as you're into the high balance limits, um, 475 with zero points on a 30 year fixed, and you go down to a 10-6, starts getting really attractive. 10 year fixed period, and you're under 4% with zero points. And if you're a little bit more risk tolerant and willing to take on a five-year, you can get that down about three and a half percent. Now, again, that's not every lender. You can't call up any bank, everyone in the world, but the best and most aggressively priced um, portfolio lenders, that's what uh, that's what we're looking at today. So again, not great news. Um, if you look at that Optimal Blue Mortgage Market Index that, that Jeb posted, it's going to be real similar um, to, to what we looked at there, probably a little higher, especially for FHA loans. Um, but that's for us here in California. 
California, best qualified borrowers. If you have a little lower credit score, lower down payment, you're going to look at a little bit of a premium on that. Good stuff. So, you know, Josh mentioned podcast a couple times in there. For those of you guys who aren't familiar, we do a podcast that's separate from this. Um, so this is, you know, my channel is primarily built on housing market stuff. I talk about loan programs here and there. Podcast is my primarily deep dives into specific topics. So if you don't know about it, check it out. It's on major platforms out there. Just search the educated home buyer. But every Friday, this post. So if you don't have time, don't want to watch us here or listen to us for two hours, you can listen to this entire thing on on a you know on a podcast platform. It will post there. Put it in two speed and you're done in an hour. Um, you get a lot of good information about buying houses. So check it out there. Um, and and more, more importantly, if there's something you want us to talk about in detail, let us know, right? I mean, we, we know what we want to talk about, but a lot of times it's not what you want to hear as a consumer or as a potential home buyer, potential seller or whatever. So let us know, you know, write it in the comments now. Hey, well, this is, this would be a great topic for us to dive into because we're looking to record some more episodes now and they'll be out here really soon. So um, that's that front. Uh, you got people out there at the moment. So what else, you know, we've been talking for a long time, right? We're going to get to questions here in just a minute, but we've been talking a long time about what changes the market. Like what can change the housing market to make it more balanced? And, and the answer is always supply, right? Supply is the answer to a lot of the problems. And I quote unquote problem there, but, and with that, Demand dropping off allows that supply to build, but it always goes back to supply. More supply creates more balance. And if you get enough supply, it shifts the balance entirely where it becomes a buyer's market. We're, we're a long ways from that. But the reason I bring this up is because you've got higher rates, you know, pushing affordability, which again, that puts some buyers that aren't able to purchase out of the market. Supply kind of builds a little bit there. You're going into the spring market, which is typically a time of the year when more property starts to come on the market. We're seeing that now. Now, what's what else could help add supply? Now, Josh and I have talked about this a little bit, and I did a video that's going to post on Friday where I talk about this a little bit too. Property taxes, right? Now, we've talked about property taxes in the past. Now, in California, you're somewhat protected to some extent because you have Prop 13. Your taxes can't increase by more than 2% per year. But if you live in another state, for example... And I'm going to bring a clip here up on, on my computer in a minute um, of something that someone sent to me. Uh, but if you if you live in another state, you know you buy a house at, at X price, $500,000, your taxes are based off your purchase price at some point, right? I mean, it might take the, the county assessor a little bit to get them to your current price. But what happens is as homes in your neighborhood or your track start to sell for more, your property taxes are eventually going to go up too. So there's this whole idea at the moment that the next big down leg or the next fall in in housing is going to be because of property taxes going up and people not being able to afford the properties that they bought, um, you know, a couple years back or maybe even a long time ago just because of these increases. So again, this is where I'm asking you as a viewer that live in all these states across the country. Do you think that's a problem for one? Because I mean, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. I've asked the survey on my on my channel about you know people increase. You know, have you seen your property taxes increase? And a large percentage said, yeah, that we saw them increase quite a bit. Uh, I don't know that it's enough to change the market entirely, but is it enough? Where some people are like, I can't afford this, or screw this, I'm out of here, I'm going somewhere where this doesn't 
come into play, which I don't know where that is at the moment, but does that create more supply? I mean, Josh and I had this question, you know, or I had this question to Josh and we were kind of bouncing it back and forth. And it's like, does it help add to supply? I think the easy answer is yes. I think it does, but how much supply and and when does it happen? Because a lot of times property taxes aren't due. You know, I was talking to somebody in the Austin market, the property taxes aren't really due until the beginning of next year. So they've got eight, nine months before it really is a real problem when those taxes have to be paid or what have you. So just interesting, you know, things that, that we're thinking about here that could create more balance in the market. Josh, anything you want to add on that one? No, in terms, in, no. In terms of the the property taxes, it's definitely an interesting thing, and it, it's fun for you and I to to bat it around and start looking at how different states handle it. Because in California, we're unique among all fifty states with with Prop thirteen that you're limited to two percent annual increases in your property taxes. So home values can go nuts like they have the last two or three years, and it doesn't really impact the equation. Um, but you, you dug in and did the research, and again, interesting to think most states because they don't have Prop thirteen, they have homestead laws where some or a portion of your home value is sort of exempted from right. this run-up in, in property taxes. But you also have to be a primary owner for those. Prim right? Primary investor, owner. You don't get so that. as an investor, you don't get those protections. Right. So fortunately for investors over the last few years, not only have prices and therefore property taxes gone up, their rents have been going up. But it, it impacts the calculus. There's there's a lot of um, unintended consequences, not only of conscious decisions, but of just market forces and how they play out. Um, you know, I, we wouldn't have thought that rates going up would decrease the number of sellers coming to market. Now, it seems as though we've seen a few of those sellers get off the fence, the ones that were expecting or hoping that that home prices were going to continue going up 15, 20% a year, and they would just hold on. Now that there seems to be a little bit of moderation uh, along those lines, we definitely um, are seeing a little bit of a change in that, but it's interesting. The, 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 the thing that I can say is it is all interesting. We're looking at data, looking at it week after week after week. And in terms of all of this, are we seeing more supply come to market? Absolutely. Um, so you want to look at the charts and you want to see where we get back to normal, what normal looked like pre-pandemic, which was still tight, well less than six months. Um, until we get to the six-month level, it's still going to be a seller's market. I think everyone from realtors to buyers, everyone but sellers are going to be pretty happy that it's not nearly as strongly a, a seller's market. It's been very difficult for uh, professionals on the buyer side and and for buyers. So uh, I think we all welcome some some normality from that end. No, I, I agreed one hundred percent. I mean, it is uh, you know we want we want normal just as much as the next person. And with that, I'm going to address a question that we're going to get at some point tonight, and I'm just going to reference them back to this point in the video. Should you buy right now? If you if more inventory is coming to the market, rates are up. Should you wait? Right. And and my answer is going to be depends on your situation. Right. You've got to be Josh and I have talked about this a little bit more cautious in this environment just because prices have run up so fast. Rates are up. If I were a buyer at the moment and I'm still looking at property, you know, I, I my wife is honestly she's on online more than I am um, looking at property. Um, we're in a position where it makes sense to move if we can find the right property because we've got three growing boys. You know, we're in. 2,000 square feet, just under 2,000 square feet in the house, it makes sense 
to, to buy the property because we know that next property, we're going to be there for an extended period of time. And so that's going to lead me into, if you're buying in this market, have a longer term time horizon, right? Just kind of, it just insulates you against any, you know, potential moves in the market. And the market is going to go down at some point, right? It's not always going to go up. Want to be clear, housing prices don't always go up. You know, as much as people comment on my videos and say, that's what I say, that is not the truth. They don't always go up. So longer term time horizon allows that not stretching yourself, money in the bank, all those are good things. So if you are a buyer, you find the right property, great, fantastic, move forward. But if you're somebody buying a property, it's not the right one, you know, but you, you know, you're thinking rates might go up, you're, you know, just this one will do for now. Maybe that's not it. Maybe, maybe you just wait a little bit because we are starting to see a little bit more supply. And with that, you might see home prices continue to move sideways to up a little bit. I don't think you're going to see personally any big pullbacks in prices. I don't think so. Um, I just, I'm not seeing it at the moment. Even homes that are sitting on the market a little bit longer, you know, instead of five days, they're now sitting on the market for 10 days. We're not seeing crazy things. We're seeing homes that, you know, uh, that, that have price reductions. Those are homes that should have had price reductions regardless of any market, just because they're overpriced to start with. So just keep, all of that in mind. And remember, real estate's local. So if you're in a market that, you know, hasn't been like what we've been talking about, then just kind of gauge it, right? Don't just take somebody's advice off YouTube and go buy a house or sell a house or, you know, make your decisions. Use all of that as, you know, a piece of the information that, you know, that you use when deciding to buy a house. So anyway, Josh, I'm going to ask you a question here. Shoot. I'm going to ask you a question from Dan. Dan says, are interest rates tied more to the 10-year or the Fed funds rate? Or is it potentially a hybrid of the two? Fed's fund rate has zero impact on, on mortgage rates. And in, in theory, the 10-year has no direct bearing on mortgage rates. But in reality, the fact that the Fannie Mae mortgage-backed securities compete with the 10-year treasury for investors. They're tied together. They don't move in lockstep, but that the prices paid for mortgage-backed securities are never going to get far away from the 10-year. So if you want to know what's happening with mortgage rates, you want to look at the 10-year. But one of the things we love to show, um, pulled up the chart many a time, is the spreads between 10 years and mortgage-backed securities can be narrower or wider. At the beginning of COVID, when in, but before the Fed jumped in and started buying mortgage-backed securities, that spread went from, on average, the last 10 years, about 1.7%. So take the 10-year, add 1.7, and that tells you what the average 30-year fixed rate is. So, so let's, um, let's, for example, today, 10 years at 2.9%. Two eight, two eight and change. It's gone Let's down. just say two nine, just to, just to be on yep. the high side. Two nine, that one point seven spread would put rates today, in four theory, six. at four point six. Yeah, but they're not at four point six. Yeah, we're right. seeing a spread more of like two two, two two five, um, and the reason for that there is always a logical reason. Investors are not willing to pay as much for mortgage-backed securities as they normally are because they're worried that the Fed is going to take their trillions with a T of mortgage-backed securities and sell them off. And the plan is that they are. The pace for the next 12 months, if they sell the $35 billion or whatever a week, is like $1.14 trillion over the next 12 months that they plan on, on selling off. 
if they do that, that could have a negative impact on the prices paid for mortgage-backed securities. So you're always looking at the interplay between those. So right now, mortgage rates are elevated relative to the 10-year over what they normally are. So the 10-year could stay level, the 10-year could get worse, and mortgage rates could get better if the market and investors concluded that it's not a problem. Either the Fed is not going to sell as many mortgage-backed securities as they say they're going to, or that the market just absorbs them. We talked last week that last year, there was about a trillion dollars more of supply of mortgage-backed securities coming to the market because of all the refinances being done. Market absorbed them, no problem. Now those refinances are gone and we have a trillion dollars of supply that will replace it by the Fed taking it off of their balance sheet and selling it into the markets. So in theory, we don't have any change to the supply demand balance, but we've seen a little back off in demand just because of that uncertainty. Once they start selling the 35 billion a week and the market gets some comfort, we could see that, that gap narrow and we could go back to one seven, one eight. We could see it get worse. It could go to two five. So we wanna watch the 10 year treasury ignore the federal funds rate in terms of, of mortgages. We know what Fed funds is going to do. It's going to be going up rather rapidly. All of these things are going to lead to a recession at some point. The only debate, the only rational debate is when. The most aggressive people say by the end of the year. That's pretty quick. I don't, I, I don't believe it, but I wouldn't be shocked. Um, some people say middle of next year, end of next year. But we, we talked about last year when the Fed was not acting and they were continuing to buy mortgage-backed securities in a very strong overheated market with really low interest rates. Um, we, we talked about they always wait too long to take away the punch bowl. And then when they do, they don't just take away the punch bowl. They turn on the lights and they you know start ushering everyone out. So a long, short way of saying that they just slam on the brakes too hard. So this is predictable. It's it's happened every time um, we've had an overheated economy for the last 20, 30 years. The Fed comes in too late and comes in too hard and they slow things down. So um, with that, Jeb, you know, kind of a, a follow-up question here. Um, Jay followed up and I think he misunderstood what I, what I was saying. There's no way will I believe we'll see our inflation rates moderate in 30 to 60 days. In June and July, you're going to see lower year-over-year -year inflation numbers. That is moderation. Does it mean it's a change? Does it mean it's coming down? It's in how they measure. Yeah, they measure exactly. the month over month figure and average it out over 12 months. So yeah, those so numbers are going to come, come down. off and a low exactly. month come on. The so average between now, goes down. We, I mean, think about it. We might get to 10% before then. And so it could come down to 9.2 or 8.9. Does, does, right. does it mean people are going to go, hey, fantastic. We've got inflation under control. Um, and we also, the second part of what I said is we've got a couple of hot months coming on after that, and they're going to go right back up. So October at this point is really about our earliest hope for looking and seeing any persistent downtrend. And it won't, it's not going to come from 10 to eight to six to four. It's going to be a slow trickle down, just like we've seen the run up over the last 12 to 24 months. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, so just side note, guys, 367 people on here. That's the most we've ever seen this early in the show. So thank you guys who are watching and supporting the show. It's all all good stuff. Helps us, uh, you know, accomplish goals of educating. So good stuff. Thank you, guys. Um, Wendy has a really good question here. So Wendy says, what will be affected more by higher rates? Entry-level homes in the $800,000 range or higher homes in say the $1.5 million range. It's something I've been thinking about. And, and I think, I mean, 
the the easy answer is the first time home buyers are definitely affected more by higher rates just because they typically don't have the capital selling a property and being able to take that capital and help them buy the next one more generally speaking right now i'm summarizing but i i think that is the, the first time home buyer gets affected the most now you're seeing 800,000 to 1.5 so people out there watching this going who the hell at, at $800,000 <laughs> is a first time home buyer hmm. and Believe it or not, here in California, states like California where prices are high, there are a lot of first-time home buyers in that price point. Now, when I started my career, I think my average price point was like $500,000. You know, I would sell 30 homes a year. The average price I sold was 500,000 because some of them were 200,000, some of them were 750. Now, I haven't sold a $500,000 home in a long time. Um, I'd love to sell a bunch of them, but they're not out there. So, the the lower price point price points get hit harder by the higher rates. But at some point you move into a bracket where it's really big money. And, and I'm talking millions of millions of dollars and it could be two to four to 6 million or whatever. And I have some friends that sell in that luxury space that really focus on that space. And inventory is a problem for them too. I mean, they have a lot of, you know, high net worth individuals looking to still buy real estate. And a lot of them are cash. A lot of them are getting loans. Um, but they have an advantage in the loans that they get and some of the leverage they have with banks and what have you and being able to, to get different types of loans and what have you. Um, so easy answer is the lower price points get hit first, um, typically speaking, because of, of the higher rates. So hopefully that was helpful. I know I, I went a long way of getting there, but. And um, Jeff, that, yep. it, it's funny. My, my answer was going to be the same thing, but in a different way. So you, you hit the nail on the head. That move up buyer generally has more capital available to them. So they have a lower debt to income ratio and they're making the decision for different reasons. The first time buyer is just saying, hey, renting no longer works for me. I want to get into the market. And they're oftentimes stretching. Um, what I can say is on the higher end of the market, those people are generally um, more attuned to the markets and have a stronger feeling for uh, for where things are. I mean, for this show and for the podcast, most of our listeners are first-time buyers. There's some move-up buyers and some wealthy folks um, that will reach out and ask about a $2 million loan, but for the most part, it's the, the first-time buyer. So those people have financial advisors, CPAs, they're they're reading the wall street journal whatever where they're getting their financial information so hold on can, they're not watching tiktok they're not watching tiktok for their financial news so. this is a sham bro how am i supposed to get rich well it just depends it just depends just if you go and, and buy hertz stock as soon as they file for bankruptcy is the best way to oh, do that's it. how you do it <laughs> so uh, you have the you have the, the two sides definitely the the entry-level buyer is more price sensitive but the the high-end buyer is more opportunity sensitive if they feel like that's no longer an opportunity or it's too much of a stretch for them they may back away as well but definitely agree with jeb that the entry-level buyer who's who's stretched already with high prices is going to be uh, a little bit tighter and it doesn't have to be eight hundred thousand dollar entry level it's whatever entry level is in your market and whatever move up and high end is in your market yeah and, and understand the last thing i'll add on to that is the the first time home buyer or the and and this you know typically the the buyer with the um the lower price point is usually a little bit more emotional than the high net worth individual that's probably done this a couple of times or 
isn't you know necessarily counting on that property to appreciate for them to get to the next level or whatever. So there's less emotion. It's more of a business, not not necessarily a business decision, but less emotional decision in in those higher price points. So it either makes sense for the family and for what they want to do and where they want to live, or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, they move on to the next one. So anyway, uh, Archie has a question here. Archie says, uh, is there anything being done to counter BlackRock Zillow Redfin buyers? No, I mean, there's not really a lot that can be done, right? It's, you know, there's only so much you can do to limit buyers, right? I mean, we're in a market where it's, you know, you, you, the U S I mean, you know, you come here for, for freedom and being able to, to, you know, to capitalism and all of this other stuff. And so there's only so much you can do on that side to prevent them. And again, for, for investment companies like that, it's very much a financial decision. Does it make sense to buy this property or does it not? Now, there are, like as an investor, these companies buying these properties in, in different states, they don't get some of the benefits of being a primary homeowner in these states like the homesteads and what have you. So there are some consequences to them buying the property tax-wise, but it, there's nothing to limit them if that's what you're asking. And there's not gonna, there's never gonna be. Um, there's a lot of money um, coming from big corporations, big funds, funding politics and everything in between. And this isn't a political statement or a political channel or whatever, but as long as there's money feeding from those people to Congress and to people, you know, representatives of districts and whatever else supporting, it's 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 a market that's going to continue. It's been around forever. It's just more pronounced now because of the media and because, you know, of, of how short supply there is out there in the market. So Josh, anything you want to add on that one? No, um, it's again, if you're going to live in an open market economy, you have to allow that there. There's some things, you know, the, the best ways of countering it that I've seen are essentially incentives for sellers to not sell to those groups, to sell to uh, an owner occupant and preferably an owner or occupant who doesn't own any other real estate. So that they're not just saying they're going to uh, owner occupy, you know, a friend of mine, it, it was a very high up in Wells Fargo. He's retired now, still has a lot of government connections. And I don't know that there's any hope of this happening, but what he's pushing for would be a break on the taxes on sale for any seller selling to an owner occupant versus selling uh, selling to one of these big groups or just any other investor with multiple properties. And I think if we could tip the scales in favor of the occupant buyer versus outlawing or making things illegal uh, would be the better route to go. But it's it's tough and I don't know what, if anything's going to get through. There you go. Uh, again, there's just not a lot. I mean, it, it, as prices continue to rise, you know, and 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 they and they probably are going to move more stagnant sideways for you know some point in the future here versus go up like we've seen. Um, but at some point, it doesn't make sense for these investors to continue to buy some of these properties. So you're going to see less of them in the market anyway. Uh, but I do think if you saw prices pull back at all in some of these markets, you're going to see there that financially again. You know, there's another question here asking about what happens in, in the stock market. You know, money comes out of the stock market. It's not just going to sit on the sidelines. I mean, it might in some regard, but it's always like funds are going to invest that money. Their job is to make money for their clients, to make money for themselves. You know, hedge funds get paid on on profit. 
right? I mean, typically they're a, a, a 220 type split. So they're they're getting money when they make their clients money. So they're going to park that money somewhere. And if it's coming out of the market, it's probably not going into bonds at the moment. So it's probably going to go into real estate in some form or fashion, but it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. You, you um, absolutely, Jeb, for the, not for real estate investors, but for your average homeowner, there is absolutely a wealth effect in terms of your 401k. Most people aren't invested directly. They don't have a brokerage account, but almost everyone has a 401k and IRA. When that's going up and they see that balance bigger, they're more comfortable taking on other large commitments like a house, like a mortgage. So it would be reasonable to think that there will be a, a negative impact. It's, it's almost comical though to hear people talking that we're seeing the very first signs of, of additional supply coming to market. We got to the point where we had less than one month supply. We would have to have six times that to get to a neutral market. So we've, we've listed a lot of factors tonight that are pushing things in that direction. Um, but we also, you know, two weeks ago, we showed a chart that showed we have 14 million more households formed since 2008. And we have, uh, what was it, Jeb, two and a half or three million less homes built uh, since that time. So we were building about three and a half million homes annually, and it's like 900,000 So right now. So we have a shortage of two and a half million. So all of these things are correct. Higher rates will limit the number of buyers available. It will moderate the, the prices going up. And we absolutely positively need that. 15, 16, 17, 12, 9% annual inflation is not sustainable. So when you look, oh, shoot. If, if we go, I deleted it. If we go over, well, fix it, Jeb. I know, if sorry, we go guys. over a 65 year time frame and home values have averaged 4.8% including years where they went down 10 to 15% in 2008, 2009, you know, these, these numbers that Jeff, these don't lie. These people aren't going to decide, oh, I just don't want to buy a house. The supply demand situation cannot get fixed. So we, in a way, need these higher interest rates. As painful for it is, as it is for anyone who doesn't own yet or didn't get to refinance at the lower rates, it's better for the market that it moderates this stuff. The quicker we can get to five or six months supply where it's a balanced market, where buyers and sellers can meet on an, a level playing field and come to a reasonable price. But anyone expecting that with a monstrous supply demand imbalance, like we're looking at there, that we're gonna see a big dip in prices in the next two, three, four years, it's not going to happen. You know, our best case is is we moderate. And you say best case for someone wanting to get into the market, you have a, a 10, 15, 20% correction. But what does that do? It takes us back to where we were early last summer and, and no more. So um, all of the questions, we're going to go through a bunch of questions tonight. They come up every week. Should I buy now or should I wait until prices come down? When are they going to come down? How much are they going to come down? How much have you lost in the meantime? What are you doing now? Are you renting? Um, so a lot of questions along those lines, and, and we're going to go through them. All right, good stuff. Um, so I, we, I want to put this question back up there, just because I don't know that we addressed it directly. Um, but so the stock market comes down. I'm going to ask you this question, Josh. You, 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 and again, we're we're in a different position than some people out there, but I'm just going to, you know, as I would anyone. You own a house. It's on a fixed rate. The stock market drops by 40%. Do you sell your house? No. No. no not right. not I mean, I'm, I'm asking a question. I I want you no. to answer. Do you do you sell your house? The answer is no. Okay. Do you 
do you go to the stock market and sell everything there? Some people will. No, I'm asking some you. People, what, what are some you people going will. To do? I'm not going to. Some people will. A lot of people will. Right. It's been proven over time that people sell at the worst time and and buy at, no. at, at the worst times. No, for sure. I mean that that's human emotion, right? Things pan people panic immediately goes down and and get out and then it goes back. I mean that's the natural, you know, market reaction or what have you. But I'm just I'm I'm literally just asking a question here because I read that statement I think okay, the market goes down by 40% hypothetically, right? I mean, we're already down 10, 15% from from highs or I don't actually I don't know where we were. I haven't looked at it in the last week or so, but uh, market is down from, from highs. So, but the market goes down. Do I panic? I don't personally. I mean, I've got brokerage accounts. I've got money put in stocks and equities and whatever. And to be completely honest, I look at it maybe every two weeks, right? I don't look at it daily. Um, just like I don't look at my house value daily. Um, it, it never really look at my house value because quite frankly, I mean, I know the market where I'm at. So that's probably part of the reason, but I don't look at it at all. And I definitely don't panic because the market's gone down. I'm not looking to sell anything or buy anything or whatever, but I do have cash sitting on the sidelines. Market drops 40%. I can tell you what I'm doing. I'm buying more stock uh, personally. Uh, maybe yeah. I, you know, buy another you're, house. Hell, I don't know. You're hundred percent correct, but I think you're looking at this from a homeowner's perspective. Okay. That does impact home buyers. People are more comfortable with big ticket purchases when they are feeling the wealth effect. When the stock market That's drops fair. 20, 30%, there's a negative wealth effect. Those people are feeling less secure about their decision-making, about what they're doing. So I don't think in any way a stock market crash increases supply but it will take out some demand in terms of people just not no, feeling as good about that. their finances. I, I'm thinking more from a supply standpoint. No, demand, it, it definitely, yeah. People will be affected by that for sure, um, especially those that are within years of retirement or whatever. Those people definitely get affected and, and um, more hurt by that. I feel like I got time on my side. I'm not worried about you know the market dropping on this you know equity side at all, really. I mean, for me, it's a buying opportunity, but I think about it in a different way. Uh, but I don't think it causes prices to come down because I think sellers in those situations would probably stay put. Um, you know, now when some might need the equity from their property and decide to sell, that could create some supply. I just, again, these are hypothetical situations. So it's really hard to say, this is Here's, what happens. These are really just my opinion, Josh's opinion and, and whatever. So Jeff, you uh, just said something really important. Buyers can control prices going up. If buyers stop offering more for homes, they can keep them from going up. So they can cause a market to level off. Only sellers can allow a market to come down. A seller has to be motivated enough to take a loss and it's a paper loss. So if I sell my house, if, if the market drops 20% in the next 12 months and I sell my house, my loss was on paper. It's just the, the gains from the last 12 months. But the reason why we talk about home prices being sticky to the upside mm 
is even when they're paper losses, people do not like that. They will stick their happy butts in their happy houses and wait one year, five years, 10 years until the market recovers so they can say, I didn't sell my home for less than what its peak value was. People like selling when their home is worth more than it ever has been, and they dislike selling when it's worth less. It doesn't mean that no sellers will sell. Some people are forced to. Divorce, death, job right. loss, just preference. I, yeah. I'm, I'm out of California. Whatever. I yeah. hate this. Relocation. I'm going to Texas. Yep. So there will be sellers that will sell, but a large volume will not choose to sell. So you have to have a massive economic event before you see home prices decrease on a major level. That's why we say in California, we had three major downturns before 2000, 2008, 2007, 2008, and they were all in the magnitude of about 10, 12, 15% corrections. That's what can be expected when you have a few motivated sellers selling in a down market and no buyers absorbing that. But like, I think a lot, we see a lot of questions and a lot of people asking here as though, hey, I just buyers aren't going to buy. These prices have to come down. Well, that's only if sellers have to sell. Most of them don't. Some do. Most of them right. don't. So that's why you don't see these monstrous swings. 2007, 2008 was a different animal. People hadn't put any money down. They didn't qualify for the loan. They could walk away, risk nothing but their credit, and get a cheaper, better house than the one that they owned. That is a thousand miles from where let, let we're me, at right now. Let me give you an example. I, I put a property on the market this past week as a rental. Um, I Actually, somebody from YouTube reached out to me um, and said, hey, do you do rentals, whatever? Um, I got a property that I, I want to lease out. I put it on the market. It's in Cypress, California, right? Not the best city in the world, but not bad by any means. Um, nice single family home, uh, three bedrooms, two baths, what, 1,300 square feet, $3,500 a month, okay? $3,500 a month. I must have had, hell, I don't know, 100 people call me in less than 24 hours to want to see and lease this property at $3,500 per month. Now, it's probably going to end up leasing for more than, than than we had out there just because of the attention on it. But just, I mean, there is so much demand on rentals. And, and the reason I bring this up, the, the numbers, the, the, the rental amount, all of that means absolutely nothing. But what I'm telling you is there's so much demand on the rental side that if you're selling your home, you're going to have trouble probably find, finding a rental that is less expensive than what you're selling just to rent. I mean, it might, and granted, if you have specifics or, or things that you want in that property and location and whatever, you're really up against a lot of people trying to find that property. It is it is as crazy the rental side as as the housing the buying and selling was you know a year ago that is what what it feels like it is i mean i can't tell you how many people are calling my phone and texting me and just and i apologize if you're one of those people that have called or texted me and i haven't gotten back to you it's because of the number of calls i've gotten so just if you're thinking of selling and you're just going to go rent something Make sure you understand your market because it is it is nuts out there. Anyway, that's Southern California for you. Uh, 490, 506 people watching. Wow. Thank Look you, guys. Um, so this that. is a good question. Um, I'm not sure I have an answer, but how much of the problem is due to not enough supply 
versus buyers grabbing houses too fast due to excess cash. Do you have any stats on this? So it, supply is definitely the, the driver. I mean, that is the lack of supply is what is caused buyers to make those quick decisions about grabbing houses quickly. So it all boils down to supply to start with, because if there were more supply to start with, buyers wouldn't have necessarily had to make quick decisions to find a property. So it goes back to supply. But yeah, there there was a time in the market when buyers were making, I will say, irrational decisions in some regard. I think you're going to see less of that um, just because buyers are going to have more options. I told you at the beginning, what I'm seeing more of right now is buyers taking a little bit more time to, to write the offer on the property. You know, the, three months ago, hell, not even three, but six weeks ago, property came on the market on a Friday, you had offers Saturday. Now you might get them on Monday or Tuesday, or it might even be Wednesday before you get offers, but they're still getting multiple in many cases, but it's just taking a little bit longer to get there. That is going to allow supply to build a little bit more. Buyers have options now. That's a good thing. You don't have to take the only one. You have, you know, I can live here or I can also live here. It's not just one option. So I don't have any stats on that. I can just tell you from being an agent in the market and, you know, dealing with buyers out there that it, it, it comes down to, you know, the supply is what drove everybody to make those irrational decisions to start with. Uh, Josh, we asked a question earlier about property taxes, or I did. Big G's in Arlington, you know, property tax has exploded, uh, but saying hasn't noticed anything in these markets uh, that, you know, in the hot markets with regards to property taxes that's caused anyone to sell. I also talked to a, a top agent in Nashville today, um, a, a gentleman I met a couple years back. He's in the luxury space. Uh, so I reached out to him and just, hey, you know, what are you seeing? Are there any limitations on property taxes in Tennessee? And he said, no, there's there's nothing that keeps them from going up. But what happens is they have an appraiser that goes out and appraises these properties and whatever. And it takes every two years or every year or whatever they assess them. And he sent me a screenshot uh, of one. Um, and and I'll, I'll try to pull it up here in a minute. Um, it has a property address on it. So I don't want to post that on there. But let me see if I can get it off while you're talking at some point. And it basically shows the the progression of property taxes from like the last 10 years and what has happened on this particular house and gone up. But I've asked the question, well, with all that explosion, have you seen people selling because of it yet? And he's like, no, not yet. But could it be a factor is what I asked him. He said, yeah, it could be, but I don't see it being a problem. So we're going to see um, as, as this unfolds, because obviously this takes time and you know, months, years to, to kind of really see the full effect, but I'll, I'll pull that up here in just a minute and we can, uh, can look at it. Cause I think it's, it's interesting for me to see being a Californian and seeing how my property taxes have gone up in 10 years, maybe 500 bucks or something. I mean, not even that. I don't, I don't know what they've gone up in, in 10 years where look, these people are seeing, you know, double digit growth sometimes. Look it up here. I'm going to, I'm going to answer one while, while you're doing that. All so, right. I'm going to ignore some of the stuff here in Willing's question, but says, where do you see the use of automation and technology in mortgage? How will this potentially change the industry, good or bad? Um, we have a very funny industry, especially in the current political climate where everyone is concerned with equality. I think we all should be concerned with equality, but we have some funny decisions and outcomes in this industry. An algorithm 
can properly assess risk. Like we talk about rates at the beginning of the show, I showed you the rate is this, the rate is this. And yes, if your credit score is higher, it's a little bit better. Credit score is lower, loan to value, um, all that stuff can impact it. But an algorithm can price the risk appropriately so an investor gets what they should be getting in terms of, of a yield for given risk in any loan. We don't allow that. One of the big debates in our industry is how much do we allow algorithms to do? Is there algorithmic bias in the industry? And there's absolutely, there's no algorithm that wasn't programmed by a person. All people have biases. We would love to claim we're unbiased. And I don't mean biases like I don't like people of this color or I don't like people that speak this language. Um, some of us like running. Some of us hate running. Some of us love ice cream. Some of us hate it. Those are all personal biases. Hold on. There's people out there that don't like ice cream? crazy people they're like lactose intolerant <laughs> or something they're anti-cow i think even if you're lactose intolerant you still like <laughs> you still like cream. it you just, you just don't get you to just eat don't it. want to, to risk it so what what i can say is technology has made a tremendous impact on my job in the 26 years of doing this um for those of you that remember what these things are what paper is um we used to have files that were like a phone book like three four inches thick and you have the thing called an, an echo that would go and it would hold you would two hole punch the and it would hold the papers in there and we would have to like daisy chain two or three of those together we don't have any of that um, i was on another call yesterday and we talked about how um, it used to be we would do a pre-qual for a borrower because it took time effort and energy for them to get to us and get their documentation to us so we wanted to get the realtor hey here's what we think it is we need to get the documentation to confirm and have a full pre-approval but really there's no need for a pre-qual because in minutes you can get us everything we need safely securely through uh, a secure portal and we can do that so it's made the job much easier, but we have a ton more government regulation and 50% of it is worthless and make things harder. 50% of it is necessary to prevent the things that happened in 2007, 2008. So I think our industry is always going to be hamstrung by the concerns over inequality and unfairness and bias. So the, the tools will continue to get better. Margins will continue to decrease because they don't need to be as high because a person, whether it's a loan officer or a processor, everyone can produce more than what they have in the past. So that's my take on technology and Jeb now has what he was looking for. Yeah, so I was talking about property tax. So this was in Tennessee. Uh, it was in a, a county right outside of Nashville, um, not Franklin, but somewhere in that. I, I'm not sure exactly. I could look it up. Um, but anyhow, just an idea it shows you what property taxes did there, right? 2013, 3900 bucks. 2021, 13000 Now this property in 2021 was was list, was priced about 1.4, was worth about 1.4. Today, they're going to list it for $2 bucks. So property taxes are probably going to go up again. So you just look at that and say, okay, if you're the homeowner that lives beside them that bought their house at 500,000 or whatever versus the 2 million, you know, yours might get reassessed, maybe not to these numbers, but it's probably going to go up and that could cause pain for some people. So I don't know. I mean, it's really hard to say how this plays out, right? Because you just don't know people's financial positions and, and, and how these, you know, all these different states work. There's 50 states and hell, I know 49 of them have different uh, ways of handling property taxes than California. They don't all handle it like California does. So I'm not familiar with how all of it works exactly. Will it cause some people to sell? 
Absolutely. Is it going to cause a crash? Probably not. Anyway. And Jeb, this is a funny thing. We, we talk Prop 13, for those of us in California, outside of California, you mentioned that and no one knows what in the world you're talking about. It is highly contentious here in California. It is yes. an imperfect solution, um, but it was a very real problem that people outside of California until very recently didn't experience the way we had. In the 70s, we had a boom in housing where a home that, say, your grandparents bought in the 50s for $3,000 and was taxed at like, 40 or 50 dollars a year had gone up in value to seven thousand dollars seventy thousand dollars and has like a a thousand dollar tax bill and we hear that and we go oh big deal it went from 50 bucks to a thousand dollars well they might have been on social security that was you know twenty four hundred dollars a year and now they have a thousand dollar tax bill and it was making it where elderly people were having to sell their homes. So it is a real thing and different states are going to have to come to ways of grappling with it unless you have a big correction in home prices, which some of our viewers are hoping for. Good stuff. Um, let's see here. I just got a good, I mean, I just saw this question, so I'm going to pop it up there because it was literally one I just popped. I mean, I just saw. So um, Brian, how can I remove PMI on an FHA loan without refinancing these crazy rates? I got a 2.56 interest rate when I bought my house, but I want to lower my mortgage payment. Josh, this is a problem for many people. So how can you, you got, you got an FHA loan. How can you get rid of that PMI? Now, if you've got equity, can you call your lender and get it off? Does FHA do that? How does it work? So on 30-year loans, which I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I'm pulling this out of my ear, 99% uh, plus of, of FHA loans are done minimum down 30-year. And under those terms, since 2009, 2010, um, under Obama, they HUD changed it where it will never come off. For the life of the loan, nothing can happen. You can pay that loan down to $1. It can never come off. So your option is only refinancing. So with that very good rate, it's pretty simple. 2.65 plus 0.85% if you put 3.5% down. So what does that give us? 2.625, it's like 3.475. So until 30-year fixed rates get below that by enough for it to make sense, um, you got a good rate. Gonna, you're, you're, you got a good rate. You're not going <laughs> to refinance that loan, and you know you have other things that come into play, um, depending on if you meet the requirements for there to be tax deductibility on the mortgage insurance. If you make too much money, it's not deductible. If you make uh, little enough, then it is. So it, it's a problem. So your only hope would be for HUD, who the reason why the Obama administration made that change is that the FHA mortgage insurance fund was close to going insolvent. So like our friends in Washington always do, they put their heads together and said, hey, let's make the mortgage insurance stay on there for the life of the loan. They didn't do any research to know that FHA, primarily used by first-time buyers, most of them will buy or will sell or refinance say in the first 10 years of, of ownership. So it was never going to be there for 30 years anyways. So we had a temporary program, our problem that was existed from 2007 to 2014, 2015, but we put a permanent solution in place. And the way it generally works is if you look at the, the HUD guidelines, it says a loan originated from this time frame to this time frame is under these guidelines. So they would have to do something different than what they've done in the past and say, not only are we restoring it to 
the mortgage insurance going away when you hit 78% of the original loan balance, they would also have to make it retroactive to all those loans that now have permanent mortgage insurance. Exactly. Probably not going to happen. Um, we've been on one hour, 510 people watching. You guys are like, I mean, this is like awesome. Um, I saw 526 at the height so far, or maybe even a little bit higher. So thank you guys for supporting. Thank you guys for being ever. A lot of you are here every week. Um, so thank you for that. You know, if you haven't already hit the thumbs up, share it with a friend, listen to the podcast um, that comes out on Friday again of this content or even the other content we cover. Um, that's also appreciated as well, but just wanted to say thank you guys for, uh, for being here. All right. Uh, some good questions to get to, uh, Josh. Well, we got a comment first. Maddie is down in Vegas, got a hangover listening to us. So Maddie go downstairs, get one of the, the IVs, right? You're going to get that. You're going to be rehydrated. You're going to listen to this. And I'm not sure what you're going to do with listening to us, but you're going to go get hydrated and then you're going to be ready. You're going to be ready by nine o'clock to go do it again. Nine o'clock. I'm personally going to be in bed, but Jeb, you're going to be you, out in Vegas and Jeb, you're going to you be only, thinking me. You only gave Maddie half of the prescription. Oh, the second, cold plunge. This, cold no, plunge is the other. No, that's terrible. That's a terrible idea. The second half is, and there's actually like five steps to this. The second step is you go over to the link. You go up the escalator to the hash house and you get one of these giant sugar bomb Ooh, pancakes. Delicious. They have one of those in San Diego too. To absorb hash house and go go. Yep. So that's the second part. And the third part, and this again does not involve a, a cold plunge like Jeb was suggesting. The third part is large quantities of hair of the dog. Those three things, and you'll be good as new. There you go. Problem solved. Maddie, get back to us next week and let us know how we worked out for you. If you died, if we don't hear from you, you're dead and we had nothing to do with it. Um, let's see. So Joe has a comment, which is something that we've been addressing. Well, will people will be locked in their house um, basically because they have lower interest rates, right? So if I, my, I have a 2.99 on my house now. That's going to keep inventory off the market because hell, I don't want to sell and go pay more for a house and pay a higher rate. So that is going to affect inventory. So uh, good to see people out there actually understanding how that all works. Um, let's see, Josh, you had put a couple in here that I want to touch on. Big G is asking, any chance the SALT deductions will come back? Um, it really explain what the salt deductions are. So it's state and local taxes. So Trump came in and made some controversial, probably unnecessary changes to the tax code in 2018. Um, and that limited your state and local tax deduction to $10,000. So your state property tax, your state income tax and your property taxes were the two biggest elements of the state and local tax deductions. So if you're in a high state income tax, uh, state, California, you can be up 13, 14%. So imagine you make $100,000 and you're paying 11% in California. That's $11,000 right there. So your property tax deduction just goes out the window. You cannot deduct it because you already hit the $10,000 cap. So this is true party line politics. Um, the people impacted by this are states with high income taxes, which happen to all be blue states. So politicians from blue states are very keen to reverse this uh, and take the cap off of state and local tax deductions. And um, 
people from other states uh, kind of look at you and say, you're crazy, you're in a high tax state, and that's your problem. So could it happen? Yeah, there's there's a lot of, of popular support for it by people that are on the wrong side of it. Um, but like anything, when uh, when it comes up in Washington, D.C., that we're going to change tax policy, they sort of have to make it revenue neutral. So putting that back in place or, or taking the caps off of the state and local taxes would be negative for revenue. So and primarily for high income earners. So there's your, your trouble is that it, the people that will benefit from repealing the limits to state and local tax deductions is is the higher income earner. So my guess is no, but it absolutely could. And depending on Democratic majorities uh, existing in Washington, D.C. for an extended period. No, good stuff. Um, so let's see here. Josh says, I looked at a map showing which states are more landlord friendly versus tenant. I found my state, Missouri, Missouri, yes, Zimo? yes sir. Yeah, I think so. You know, you're smart. Uh, is tenant favored? Would it be wise to look 90 minutes down the road in Arkansas uh, for investment properties? So here's the thing California is very tenant friendly um, as a state. Now, if you can afford to buy in California for investment properties, that you get, you know, the appreciation, you get the benefit of of owning in California in many markets. Not always, not always going to be true. You know, there are states that offer better opportunities that are cash flow. I would worry less about tenant friendly versus landlord friendly personally, and worry more about what are you trying to accomplish, cash flow or appreciation. I mean, everybody wants both, but. Really, you, if you could only have one, that's the direction you should go and worry less about tenant versus landlord and work on finding good tenants. Because if you get good tenants, you don't have to worry about the landlord versus tenant crap for the most part, right? There will be people always that try to take advantage of the system, but I can tell you finding good tenants is not rocket science, you know, in, in, you know, in, in searching and doing your checks and, all of that good stuff and work with people and you won't have problems and you know, you'll be in good shape. So it, I would say go with the place that offers the better opportunity for you. Maybe it is Arkansas or maybe it's down the street in, in Missouri where you're located um, and don't get caught up in, you know, the, the headlines of tenant friendly or landlord friendly or what have you. Josh, this one popped up um, a moment ago and I'm going to let you explain it because it <laughs> happens on the California side a little bit. I mean, you know, in, in taxes. So uh, Pebbles, Pebbles, I just love saying that. Pebbles is asking, or it could be Pebbles, Pebbles, Pebbles sounds better. So we're going to go with that. Um, could you explain supplemental property taxes? Josh, what are supplemental property taxes? So we talked a little bit earlier in California, your property taxes are limited to a maximum increase of 2% per year. Your assessed value is limited to a maximum increase of 2% per year under Prop 13. So let's say you buy a house from someone that's owned their home for 20 years. We go back to 2000. Homes have more than doubled since 2000, so um, they're paying taxes. Let's use my house for an example. I paid 580 in 2003, so I believe with the 2% increases, we're up to an assessed value of about $700,000. If I sell my house, the new buyer is going to spend about a million dollars more than what my assessed value is. They don't reassess the home right at closing. So when the new owner gets the home, they're going to be paying taxes at my rate of my $700,000 assessment. But somewhere three, six, nine, 12 months down the line, they're going to get reassessed to the value they paid for the home. 
And the supplemental tax bill is the difference for that interim period when they were paying my lower tax rate versus their new higher tax rate. So it can be little, it can be big. If, you're, uh, if, if your seller bought recently in the last couple of years, we would normally say, oh, it's not gonna be that big. But if they bought two years ago, and we've seen 35% increases in, in home values, you could still see a fairly large supplemental tax bill. The important thing to note, if you have impounds, so if you have your taxes and insurance included in your monthly payment, when your loan is underwritten, they're going to use your future tax rate, not the current owner's right. tax rate in California, which means you're making your payments. When the next tax due bill comes due, they're going to pay that lower amount. There's going to be an excess sitting in your account. They're going to give you grief about saying we don't cover supplementals, but that's largely because they don't understand what they are and what you've been paying in. So for the most part, you call and say, here's my supplemental tax bill. I would like it paid. And every 12 months on your escrow impound account, they're going to do an escrow analysis and they can't have too much or too little in there. And they may increase your payment. They may reduce your payment. So there's a chance that you have to have an adjustment at the end of the 12 months. But it's but typically not a big adjustment just to be Typically clear. not a big amount. And you should not have to come out of pocket for the supplementals if you have impounds. If you don't have impounds, be ready and be aware. And your realtor or your lender can give you a very good estimate of what those supplemental tax bills will right. look like. We got a wonderful system to plug it in. It looks at the current assessment. It looks at what you're paying and it tells you what you're likely to see in terms of a supplemental. So that's not a surprise for you. Yeah. And understand it can only happen one time. You only get a supplemental tax bill typically one time when you buy the house from a previous owner. So not going to happen, you know, every year or what have you in California, other States, you know, may, may, may take it a little bit differently. So just keep in mind. Um, Brian, is saying, uh, is inventory of single family homes in Southern California still low? Are we noticing an increase in the homes and market? The answer is yes. Yes, it inventory is still low. Yes, we're noticing an increase um, of homes. Nothing crazy, nothing to change the market as a whole, getting back to numbers that we, that, you know, closer to what we want to see, even though they're still well below um, those numbers. They're, you know, we're still, I think as of today, we had 19, what I say, 1,983 homes in Orange County on the market. This time last year, I think we had 25 or 2,600. That was a market last year where we were going, God, there's no inventory. Like, where is the inventory going to come from? So it's increased, but it's still below what we want to see, well below what we want to see. So hopefully that is helpful. Uh, let's see, Josh. Jeff. Jeff, yep. hold on. Before before yep. you move on, I I, I want to show the chart from from reports on housing. This is just one area, so um, don't get too hung up on this being uh, true for your area. This is what it looks like. So we were for San Diego. This is what uh, 2019. This is how many listings there were. 2020 was lower. 2021 still lower still and 2022 super low now it's trending up the last few years we weren't seeing that much trending up so it's likely to cross over here in the next few weeks where there's more listings available than what we had last year but it's important to note this purple line up here that's a low level of listings so if we trended all the way up and got above there we're still 
for San Diego, and this is similar for Orange County, LA County, Ventura yep. County. So almost all of California is going to look very similar. The lines would look similar here that you're, you're not, there's absolutely more homes on the market, but still a re really low number of homes on the market. We need to see that double or triple before we start getting back to something that would resemble a buyer's market. Yeah. And I don't know if we can actually use that chart. So that's why I pulled it off there. Um, oh, he, I, I know he's okay sharing it, but he's like, you know, putting it online. I don't know. So, you know, um, I, I will try to reach out and see if we can use more of those. Cause there's some good charts in there for data like this to be able to present to you guys. I just, the only reason I have never done it in the past is because, you know, copyright or whatever, I don't want to, uh, to infringe on someone's hard work and not give them what they want out of it. So, uh, Josh, any, any ideas, what proportion of mortgages, uh, refinanced prior to, to, to this year? So uh, it's the vast majority. Uh, I don't have the number right in front of me, but in excess of 80%, um, when you look at the numbers, when, when I saw this question, I was looking for a chart that is really cool that shows the distribution of outstanding mortgages by note rate. Um, the vast majority of loans in the U.S. are under 3.5%, so way more than 50%. So the question that someone had brought up earlier, are people going to be locked into their homes when they have a really low interest rate? There's, there's a risk of that. Um, but you have to believe for that to be true, you have to believe that inflation is here permanently and interest rates are going to be five, six, seven percent. And I know there's a contingent of people that want to believe that. I don't think they've thought that all the way through because they want to believe it because they think it's going to bring home prices down, which if they stayed permanently that high, it absolutely would bring home prices down. But they don't stop to think what it means for every other aspect of, of your life. So um, I don't think it's true. I don't think it's going to be permanent, but uh, it's always possible. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's something I want to touch on real quick. So this, so next Wednesday for one is when we, you know, our next live, I'm going to be just leaving a conference. So the plan is to still do the show. Um, I'll be in a hotel room and things will be a little bit different, but we're going to do it. But the reason I brought this up is because on Sunday I go to a conference that I do every year and basically network with some of the top agents across the country. Um, they're, everybody's in real estate and or mortgage, excuse me. And we're going to be talking about what's happening in their market. I mean, that's not what the conference is about. It's, it's, you know, about real estate and personal growth and some other things, but I'm going to have an opportunity to talk to people in a lot of markets. A lot of people that I've referred other people on here to had the opportunity to work with. And so on Wednesday, I'm going to have a lot of information talking to people in all these different states about what's actually happening specifically in their market and be able to bring that stuff back to you. So next week's going to be good information in, you know, having conversations like, okay, what are you seeing in your market specifically? Because we get a lot of questions like what, what brought this up was Fahid's question here, um, Fahad, uh, saying, you know, what are we seeing in the Bay Area? I don't know. I'm not in the Bay Area, but I will know next week because I'll have these conversations. So next week. And if there's anything specifically you guys want to know, ask it. I, I will, you know, in here, I'll, I'll ask that to, to these different markets and be able to bring you back some good stuff. So, uh, but he's asking, are people still skipping inspections or appraisals Bay area specifically? So here's the thing. The Bay area was skipping appraisals and skipping inspections prior to the craziness that we saw across the country. It's something that's been happening in that market for a couple of years that we as Southern California thought, why the hell would anybody do that? And up there, people put, you know, and this might happen in your market. It's not as common here in Southern California, but 
you know, people would do all the inspections up front, all the disclosures were done up front, and they were put in the supplements on the MLS. So if you were interested in that property, you had supp- you had the disclosures, you had the inspections, you had all of the stuff you needed to be able to make a non-contingent offer up front because the market was moving that quickly. I don't know that that's changed in the Bay Area. Um, I know they're probably seeing more inventory, but that's been something that's been common for a while. It's probably less of it, but I think you're probably still seeing some of it. Uh, But I don't know specifically. I will try to get some more information on it and and come back to you next week on that question. Uh, But I can tell you here in Southern California, you're going to see less of the appraisal waivers, if you will, or or contingency removal on appraisal. You're going to see less of it because... Again, people got more options, you know, um, but that that's something as a buyer, I'm not telling you to do this, but you want to be competitive in a potential you know, multiple offer situation. These are things that you can still do to stand out because there will be people that still do it. Maybe not everybody, but people will still do it. The market has not shifted yet, guys, into a buyer's market. So understand that just because you see a little bit more inventory, just because it's sitting on the market a little bit longer, doesn't mean you have control. And that is very, very important to understand as a buyer, understand, you know, your place. You are still, you know, I'm not going to say at the mercy of the seller because it's not the right language, but just understand you are not driving that boat um, in, in many, in many regards. It, it's going to, it's going to be a situation where the seller still has decision making and direction of the, of that transaction and no, you don't have to agree to any of it, but you know, if you want to be competitive and, and in a multiple offer situation, you might have to do some of these things in order for your offer to stand out. So Jeb, while you were talking, it made me think along these lines. In politics, talk about demographics is destiny. You know, if if a certain ethnic group is growing, if your economy, if your your population is aging, it impacts things. So we've got a couple things. We talk about supply and demand. We talk about the wave of millennials coming into prime home buying age. Other things being equal, they want to buy. We know homes have been underbuilt, so there's a lack of supply. So that's the things that tell us home prices should go up. Well, they have, and they've gone up a ton. So you have an affordability issue, an affordability issue that's exacerbated by interest rates going up. So what happens with interest rates? Do they remain elevated? Why would they remain elevated? Because inflation becomes a concern, becomes deeply entrenched. Um, I know smart people on both sides of the equation. Um, My preferred source, I didn't get to read his uh, 10-page monthly newsletter um, breaking down his thoughts. He still is firmly in the camp that uh, everything is deflationary over the long haul, but the Fed butchered the COVID response so badly that this could drag on longer than we think. So that's the battle that we're looking at. Jeb's talking about we're still in a strong seller's market. What has to happen for it to get to a neutral or later on to a buyer's market or a price correction or a crash? We have to see interest rates stay high and go higher for an extended period of time while the economy suffers. So you have to be rooting for stagflation. The arguments that I see here in in the comments from people that are rooting for that, they seem to think that they would be immune to the things 
that would cause that crash. I mean, it's sort of wishful thinking. You, you guys have heard Garrison Keillor with Lake Wobegon days is where all the kids are above average. Well, everyone thinks their kid is above average. Everyone thinks they would escape the wrath of those things occurring and bringing home prices down. They can happen, but it would have to be stagflation and it would have to be strong enough to overcome the demographics that we have over the next few years. So those are the numbers that we look at. This is what we sit here and analyze. So we're going to bring you the numbers. We're going to show you what they are right now. I don't really want to wager one way or the other. If you ask me in 18 to 24 months, will be past this. Inflation will have moderated, will be higher than what we've seen for the last 10 years. Rates will be in a reasonable range, and we're probably headed for an extended period of time of relatively flat home prices, you know, zero to three, zero to five percent uh, home price increases. But again, that's an educated guess based off of reading a lot of really smart people and knowing what to watch to see how it plays out and what will impact the market uh, over the next three to five years. Awesome. Good stuff. Um, so first off, I want to give a shout out to Jennifer Lego. Um, I'm just now going through some of the comments here because I've been talking too much and seeing that she went in and deleted a bunch of comments that were spam, obviously. Um, and, and I didn't give her props at the beginning, but she's our moderator here. She does this for free. She's just a homeowner. Homeowner. You like the sound of that, Jennifer? She's a homeowner now um, that just does this for for sheer joy. And I appreciate you being here, Jennifer, and doing that. So that is my props to you for doing that and getting rid of the uh, webcams for girls and boys video chat that came up uh, multiple times. So thank you on that front. Um, now, Josh, um, I'm, I'm trying to get some of the simple questions just to get them out of the way because there's so many in here. Uh, let's see, Josh, any thoughts on NFTs for property? No thoughts, nothing. Sorry. Zero. No, not not even interest. No interest. No, I don't have Zero. any thoughts either. I, I just, I, I'm, I guess I'm old millennial, um, as people call me. I'm a 1980 birth, so I don't understand the desire to have NFTs. I, I don't understand scarcity of digital products. Something has to be scarce to be valuable. I don't understand the scarcity of something digital that exists on the blockchain. So I could be 100% wrong, but I do not understand it. No, it's not wrong that you don't understand it. I, I just, it, it, the question is, is it something we're missing here? And maybe, maybe, maybe we are. I have no idea. And and I, I try to read on this stuff and, and be open because obviously if you can get in on the, the forefront of something that's going to explode, you want to do it, right? So if it's something that could explode, I want to be in it. And I try to read it and understand. I'm like, I don't, I don't get the desire to own it. Um, So therefore I don't invest my money, but not to I, say I read, you can't yeah. do it. Jeb, last night I read an article on yield farming because the headline made it sound like it would make sense to me when I was done. I felt dumber for having read the article. It often happens to me. Um, I read books and I'm like, what did, did I just read? Like, holy God, I got to read a sentence like three times because my mind starts drifting mid-sentence and I'm like, okay, let me go back. Read it again. Oh, didn't understand it that time either. Okay, let's move on. So um, hey, here, here's another interesting question from someone who's commented a lot yep. tonight. Jim Shrout, you guys are in SoCal, which is completely different than most other markets around the country. And in the past, I would agree 100%. Uh -huh. Currently, I agree it's very different from many markets, but not very different from all markets. How all do right. you think the rest of the country will fare compared with California? So the rest of the country, again, is also not homogenous, just like California. But what are your thoughts on that one, Jeb? It's a tough one. Uh, you know, I mean... The so many things have changed in the last two years that I don't know will regress back to the mean, if you will, before. 
and what I mean by that is people I got fed up with with the idea of California for many reasons, you know, the the politics, the the whatever, whatever, you know, the taxes driving you from California and being able to work from home, work remotely, change the environment where people didn't have to do that. People migrated for a quality of life. People, you know, were able to get bigger houses and and wanted to make the moves anyway. So they did it. And therefore they, they went to markets like Phoenix and Idaho and Boise and Austin and all these different markets and, and push prices up in, in some of these markets. Now, the question is, those aren't different than California now because the people that left California are now many of the people that are driving those markets, not only in house prices, but also in politics and everything. The people, what they wanted to get away from, they've created in, in other areas. I mean, Austin's a really good example of that. Um, but it's tough to say, right? I mean, what happens in these other areas? I mean, I think the migration, there are still people that want to leave states like California. And there's still people that want to move out of some of these other states for various reasons and and move around. I don't know how it affects other other states. I mean, again, I'll go back and nobody wants to hear this, but it's supply. If if you've got a lot of supply in a market, that market's probably not going to fare as well as a market that has low supply over the next couple of years. Um, Just because if you have a lot of something... You know, if the demand's not there, it's going to change the, the the landscape. And in, in this case, housing would be that landscape that it changes. And so therefore, prices could go sideways, could go down. Um, it's again, these are all hypothetical things because we don't know, you know, what is going to drive the change. And so it's the easy answer is I don't have an answer for it, Josh. I don't. Some markets will be affected way more than others. No question. Which markets? I have no idea. It, it is it is the markets that were probably least desirable at the start of this thing, right? When when people moved, again, this is I'm not going to insult anyway, so I'm not going to name any cities or any states or whatever. But if you move to a place that nobody wanted to live, you know, five years ago, and and you're still there now, and and it's not growing, and there's no job growth, and there's no employment, there's no building, those areas are going to be affected you know, from this whole thing, from the lack of, of, of infrastructure and all of that. Those are the people that get affected. But if you're in an area that there's job growth, there's people still moving, they're booming, whatever, like in Vegas, for example, Vegas is still growing like hell. Now, could it be one of those markets that takes a back seat like 2008? Maybe it pulls back, but I don't think you see what you saw back in 2008 because it's not, because there are still tons of people moving there from other areas driving up the prices. So well, look, the look easy answer is I don't have an answer, but you know, some will be affecting more than for, others. For Vegas, Jeb, that's different versus now. We had a ton of Californians going out there and buying new construction homes in Vegas as investments. Investments, second homes, yeah, for sure. So you, we don't have nearly as much of people leaving their market and buying investment properties and relying on them having to, to rent. You know, a market that comes up very frequently when you look at the, the list of 10 most overvalued home markets is um, Havasu City, Arizona. And you look at it and you go, it used to be a retirement area. You could go out there and get a home for like my grandpa retired out there in 96. 
it's like 120 grand nice little 14 1500 square foot single story house warm weather um lots of hospitals all that good stuff well now that same house is seven hundred thousand dollars so we've got multiple things here we have an old population where a lot of them are going to pass away and the supply is going to come on the market. Some of it will just get passed down to families. Some of it goes on to, to uh, come onto the market. But we also have a lot of second homes. People love going to the river. They like hanging out uh, on Lake Havasu. So second homes, if the economy tanks, someone's going to let their house in Havasu go or sell it at a discount versus continuing to pay a mortgage, even though it's at a low rate. So those are the things you almost have to look at every market by itself. What industry do they have there? What supports the homeowners? Where did the homeowners come from? Why do they live there? What do they want? Um, there's so there's there's reasons when you see areas show up on those lists, and only time will tell. Exactly, only time will tell. So let's do this. Uh, I'm going to bring up a chart here in just a minute, but let's answer this. I'm going to let you answer this question real quick, Josh, because it's an easy one to answer. Um, should be pretty short lived. Uh, but what's causing the layoffs in the mortgage industry with companies like Wells Fargo and B of A? Uh, it's the cyclical nature of the business. This isn't uncommon. This happens every time you have rates go really low. Our industry staffs up to support that and then rates go up. So we talked about the supply of mortgage-backed securities. There's going to be $1 trillion less of mortgages originated this year, probably a little bit more than that, almost $1.5 trillion. So imagine the manpower needed or not needed to, to do those loans. And when you look at a lot of the companies like better.com, like rocket that just mass hiring to them, it's nothing to, to lay those folks off, um, for a smaller company like myself. If we let one person go, that's 20% of our workforce and it, it hurts. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's painful. When rocket lets 2000 people go yesterday, it's more of this big blob of, of folks. And I'm not saying they do it willy nilly or it doesn't matter, but it is the nature of the business. Anyone getting into the mortgage business should know that work your way to the top of the food chain because the bottom will get cleared out every time we have one of these cyclical runs. And the funny thing is for the last 15 years, since 2008, right when everyone gets fired is when rates dip and refinances tick back up and everyone runs back into the business. So we'll see how it happens this time. There you go. So I'm going to put this question up here and then I'm going to, I'm going, I think I'm going to put this question. So David, David has a question. What do you, what about Gen Z buyers? You should talk about them as well and do a profile on them. How many Gen Z buyers do you see in your business? So Gen Z buyers, I had to look it up because I didn't even know the ages that they were born, but they were born between 97 and 2012, which would make them I mean, at most today, what? 25? Yeah, 25 years old. Not many in the California market because of prices being where they are now. In some markets, yeah, you probably see more of them. But let's look at a chart real quick. And Josh and I pulled this up last week, was it, Josh? Um, let's see here. Let's see if I can find it real quick. This one. So this goes back and talks about bursts uh, during each generation and what have you. So Gen, you know, the, the millennial generation um, is is what is driving the market at the moment. So the, the red line here is 2006. And the reason that is circled is because it was you saw a dip in birth rate, um, you know, during that period of time. And then if you went and looked at a construction chart, you saw construction houses boom during that time. So there was less people coming into prime buying age 
and a big surplus of property, which was another problem that happened in 2006, which caused all the, the craziness. But what's interesting to note here is that if you look since then, essentially birth rates are continuing to go up, right? So more of these people are going to continue to become prime buying age as we progress further. Now, what's not on here is the end of of, of Gen, Gen Z, if you will. Uh, but you can see like probably 97 through 2012, you know, during that period of time, well, I guess that is Gen Z right there. So 97 through 2012, it started to increase. So more of those buyers over the next 10, 15 years are going to start to become prime buying age. And, you know, there's probably not going to be a big surplus of, of property coming to the market that's going to change the thing. So again, it's just so supply and demand. Jeb, looking at that chart, that, that circled baby bust there, you mm -hmm. don't see that going forward. So all the way through 2012, I mean, you see little dips, but you don't see that big dip of, of 200,000 births decrease in a year. Um, so really the only hope in this for supply demand is we've got boomers, you know, front end of the boomers, yep. 54, 76 now. So, I mean, that's, that's past median, median age or median lifespan. So hopefully, and we've had that question asked, are these, are boomers dying and homes coming to market? Yes, they are. You and I just looked at one um, in uh, a neighborhood near me today. Yeah. I'm like, it's a bitching little house. Old and lots well, of deferred maintenance. Could be. It could be a bitch in little it's house. It's not currently. Um, and that one is coming to market. And you looked and you pulled some comps in the neighborhood. Another one sold in the neighborhood. That was a trust sale after the, the person passed. So, right. yeah, that could bring some balance to it. But we're not going to have a baby bust. And we haven't had the big construction wave. So, some of it could moderate with, with baby boomers um, selling. They're not downsizing. The big expectation when I got in the business in, in 96, 97, 98, 99, 2000, hey, boomers are hitting retirement age. So again, 22 years ago, that leading edge was about 54. So when you, you look at that, they're saying, are they going to downsize? Well, it became aging in place. No one wanted to downsize or move out of their house, especially for us in California, where they have their Prop 13 taxes. Prop 13 is our theme of the day, Jeb. They are. Um, this is a question that I've had flagged for a little bit and going back to answer it. Sorry, Denise uh, says, should I buy a condo now to avoid high rent, but I still need to pay more to buy than rent? $3,600 to own, $3,100 to live in a tent. Um, no, to rent. Um, should I buy or wait? So $500 difference in owning versus renting, to me, that's a no-brainer in owning a property, assuming Again, all of those things that we said earlier are true. Longer term time horizon, not stretching yourself, money in the bank. I mean, $3,600, $3,100 in rent is probably equivalent to a $3,700, $3,800 mortgage payment with, with all the tax advantages and, and, and uh, benefits of home ownership. Um, Josh is probably doing a calculation now that's going to give us a, a number. But I would say if that's the case, it makes more sense to buy a property because out of that $3,600 you're going to pay on a mortgage, what probably seven or eight hundred dollars of it a month is going towards principal, which is for savings. Thirty one hundred at the moment is going nowhere, but to the owner's property and paying down their home. And rents are likely to go up. You're in a position where you could fix a payment and maybe even refinance at some point in the future and bring that payment down if rates do come down. That to me, all day long, you own a property. 
It's Josh. almost like it's almost like we've answered this question before, Jeb. No, it, it, uh, it is very much a hundred percent. So the calculation I was running is how much is going to go towards principal, and we have to kind of back our way in the numbers. At least five hundred dollars is going to principal. So when you take that into account, basically it's the same as your thirty-one hundred dollars rent and a five hundred dollar a month forced savings account. If we flash forward ten years and you get four percent appreciation, like we have the last sixty-five years, the home's worth about fifty percent more than it is today, and you've paid that thing down. 70000 dollars $90,000 over that time frame. So that's how you build wealth. And Jeb also mentioned fixing your housing costs. It's not going to happen with, with renting. So if you have a longer time horizon, five to seven years, and the numbers are that close, I would absolutely say bye. There you go. Philly Philly says, putting an offer in on a house right now, we put in an escalation clause with a max. Our agent wants to do escalation with no max. What do we do? Uh, you got to take the advice of your agent um, many cases, but you got to do what you're comfortable with. Um, I would say the one thing I've learned about escalations is that, you know, uh, occasionally they get capped out and you end up losing for one reason or another. But here's the thing. You could put no escalation. Your offer gets accepted. You find out the price. You don't have to move forward, right? You don't have to to to, to move forward with the transaction. So, in one situation, you might not get the deal. The other situation, you might absolutely get accepted, but it might be at a price you're uncomfortable with. So you decide at that time whether or not you move forward. Um, I don't know. You gotta, you've got to be comfortable as a buyer to make that decision, right? Your agent shouldn't be telling you this is what you have to do. It sounds like they're giving you advice on what they feel is is the best to get your offer accepted. And so, you know, if you trust the agent and trust the process uh, to go with the agent, if not, Go your way and see what happens, and and learn from uh, from 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 doing, and and learn in your market, and, and and see how it plays out. There's not a, I don't know that there's a right or wrong answer. It, it's all about what you're, what you're good with. Uh, Josh, let's see. You know, this is I, I guess a fairly easy question to ask. Um, taking PMI versus putting twenty percent down, regardless of the area. So if you had twenty percent to put down. Would you put it down to avoid PMI or would you leverage the market, put less money down, pay a little bit PMI? Thoughts? My answer is the numbers never lie. Do a side-by-side -side comparison of the different scenarios that you're considering and put as little down as you are comfortable with the monthly payment. When it comes to the question of mortgage insurance, it has a terrible reputation, but especially for borrowers with 10% or more down and really high credit scores and more than one borrower, most people are shocked at how low the mortgage insurance rate is. So take a look at that, get an actual quote. You would be stunned at how many mortgage loan officers will just take a guesstimate. Um, we use Loan Sifter for our pricing and it puts a guesstimate in there that's way too high. So we actually go into an engine that prices mortgage insurance exactly like Loan Sifter prices rates and it brings back eight different carriers for mortgage insurance and it gives us the lowest rate. And, and for most people with good credit um, and a decent sized down payment, you know, 10% plus, it's not that much. So look at both of them um, and, and just go with what you're most comfortable with. For a lot of people, it's not a question. It's not an option because they're pinned at their maximum debt to income ratio. So they have to put a certain amount down. And I guess the last thing I would say on this topic, it's counterintuitive, but generally the rate is a tiny bit better at 85% versus uh, uh, 80%. The reason being is the lender requires coverage that protects them 25 uh, 
percent against loss. So they're actually a little bit more covered with your 15% down plus the mortgage insurance you buy than you putting 20% down. So really, you just got to run a comparison, have your loan officer do it, have them get an accurate quote from a real mortgage insurance company and run the numbers for you. Absolutely. Now, MC says, what if two bidders have no escalation clauses, infinite price? Absolutely. So I've, I've been in the situation where I've had two buyers have two escalation clauses at that in that case, it's the listing agent's responsibility to go to both of them and say, hey, what is your best price? I've got two of you guys going up. Take the escalation clause out. What is your best price? And that's how you deal with it. So um, that's that's the easy way to address it. But yeah, in theory, you are correct with that. Uh, Josh, is uh, is it smart to sell your house before a recession do you think a recession's coming? So I'll ask you the second the, the second part of the question first. Answer that. Do you think a recession's coming? Easy answer, yes or no? All signs point to yes. Okay. Do you sell your house prior to a recession? Um, recessions have not proven to have a negative impact on home values. Every recession is unique and how the economy as a whole reacts uh, will determine that. So could it have a negative impact on home prices? Yes, historically, it has not, other than the Great Recession, which was actually caused by housing. It didn't make housing go down. Housing plunged caused us the recession. into recession. Right. Yeah, no, agreed. I, I did a video on this uh, last Monday, I believe, where I actually showed you the charts from back then. Historically speaking, you know, home prices have fared well during recessions. Obviously, there's a lot going into this recession that could be different because of the Fed getting involved and all the things, you know, policy-wise that have uh, come to to light oh, since the pandemic. So we don't know how it's going to react, uh, but historically speaking, the answer is it, it's there's no effect. But I would ask you the same question I would ask anybody thinking of selling a house. Sell your house and do what? Like what is, what is the goal with selling your house? Is it to sit on cash because you think you're going to buy something less expensive? Or are you going to be selling anyway and moving to another market? Are you selling and going to rent? Like why? Why are you selling? Those are the reasons and the things that you have to consider before really, I mean, regardless of recession or not, like why are you selling and see if those signs or, or reasons are, are valid and then make the decision um, going from there. Ja uh, Josh. Do uh, does California home ownership cost have any effect on filing taxes? I'm not sure I understand the question. That's why I'm I'm throwing it to you. Well, your your home ownership cost. The only thing that's going to be tax deductible is potentially property taxes, but most likely not. If you missed the question about state and local taxes, go back and and cover that. So in California, high property tax or high a state income tax, you're probably not going to be able to deduct your, your property taxes. So then you would have your mortgage interest up to $750,000, which a lot of folks have bigger mortgages than $750,000. So they're even getting capped on how much mortgage interest they can deduct. So other than that, uh, not going to have any impact on your taxes. There you go. Um, that's, I mean, that's where I thought the direction of the question was, but I just didn't homeownership cost. I'm assuming I, you know, cost anyhow. Anyway, I won't go into that. Uh, Tony, what is your advice on investing in a second home at this time? And in what market would you consider yourself? So, um, you know, I don't really have advice on investing in second homes. Second homes are a luxury. Um, you know, they're one of those things that people do because, they want a place to live in another market. And so 
does it make sense for you to own a house in that market? I mean, you got to, that's a personal thing for most people. Um, you know, you got to figure out why you're buying it to begin with. Um, do you spend a lot of time in that market already? Or are you paying costs to live there? Those are things that you think about. Um, I, I owned a second home back in the day in South Florida. And what I can tell you from my experience is it made way more sense not to own a second home and just go there on vacation and 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 have fun and from a cost perspective. Now, if it's something you do all the time, then that's, you know, something you need to weigh, uh, you know, market again, that's it, it. To me, it more sounds like you're talking about investment property than a second home because second homes are where you want to spend your time versus, you know, trying to figure out what is the best market. But Josh, thoughts? If it's truly a second home, um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the FHFA dictated to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac some changes earlier in the year. It used to be you had to put 10% down on the second home, but there was no change in pricing versus a primary residence. So for whatever reason, they went from no change in pricing to anything less than 25% down is about a four-point hit. So a full percentage point at a minimum in interest rate for a second home. So a lot of people are looking more to portfolio lenders and local banks that have more competitive rates, and you're probably looking at closer to a 20% down. So not as attractive as it was even three months ago, um, but it can be a very good way of, of getting additional real estate if we're truly talking about uh, a second home there. Good stuff. Um, Brian Espinosa, another question, gentlemen. I just bought a house, and I live um, on a dead-end street, but there are... Uh, they're basically building 25 brand new homes right next to me. Will my value go up? So it could help you. Uh, but what you don't want to see is brand new homes go up that are priced less than, than the value of your home uh, because that could, in theory, affect your value in a negative way. But assuming they're nicer, more expensive homes, you know, it, it could help your value. I mean, you know, a, a, a buddy of mine bought a house in El Paso, Texas years ago. Um, it's been a long time now, probably. 15 years ago. And for a while, the new construction homes that they were building next to him were actually less expensive to own than the house he had already bought. Um, and, th and then over time, it's obviously all changed and what have you. But you know, I don't think you're in a market where that's going to happen. Uh, but that's what you don't want to happen is where the, the newer, nicer stuff is less expensive uh, than, than the one you own. Um, but Assuming they are more expensive, it should help your value, um, but it's it's not necessarily a comparable, so to speak, as far as an appraisal goes because of the time difference, you know, in most cases. Josh, anything on that one? Nothing there, but we have a, a, a nice follow-up here. Uh, a regular viewer, Alex Rodoni, follows up on that question of mortgage insurance and should you do it, is it worth it? His purchase price was 800000 down, 800000 15% down, 744 credit score, and the PMI was $51 a month. So the difference, 5% down on 800 would have been an additional $40,000. So to keep $40,000 back, we have a $51 difference. Now, obviously, there was a cost for the borrowing the additional $40,000, about five, six bucks a thousand. So say $240 plus the 51 in MI, $300 a month versus an additional $40,000. I, I like the idea of having the cash as long as you can afford it. And then Melissa followed up here and says, we decided to put less down so we could offer more to be competitive. It worked and we got the, the offer accepted. So 
don't be afraid of mortgage insurance. I'm certainly not saying it's the right decision for everyone, but it can be a, a strategy for keeping more money in your pocket, for getting more aggressive on offers if you're in a really competitive situation. And then just staying on the topic of mortgage insurance here, Jeb, we'll do the mortgage insurance catch-all. Carrie says uh, they paid $550 to do an appraisal to get the mortgage insurance canceled. Sounds steep, but the mortgage insurance was $200 a month, so I feel it's worth it. Thoughts? Absolutely. Absolutely. That one's a no-brainer. In two and a half months, you're to the positive. So fortunately, you're in a conventional loan, not an FHA where it's on there for the life of the loan like the gentleman earlier. But um, again, PMI is not anything to be feared. It can be used strategically to put you into a better position. Good stuff. Uh, AJNL. AJ, I just I, I put two letters together. I just made a new letter of the alphabet. AJNL. I did like the LMNOP thing. Um, fair. What is the current cause of the housing shortage for California? Still a supply shortage, building permits, question mark, what would lead to a surplus in the future? So supply shortage, the answer is yes. Cause is a number of things. One is you know construction being underbuilt for an extended period of time. Another is the cost to break ground. Josh has talked about this extensively. You know, it's $90,000 here in the state of California just to break ground on new construction because of all the permits and the fees and all the craziness that goes along with it, not even considering, you know, how environmentally safe and all the other, I'm not going to say garbage because I'd probably get hate mail or something, um, but, you know, things that go along with it. So it's it's just, it, there's so many things that go into that process that have caused construction to be on um, the lower side, plus available land in desirable areas where people want to live. Some of these markets the Bay Area, like where are you going to go build in the Bay Area? You can't. So you have to go on the outskirts. Well, the outskirts are further from the Bay Area. Well, who wants to live out there? Nobody's wanted to live out there until, you know, recently because they had to, you know, commute in and deal with traffic and all of these other things. So there's just been a number of reasons that it hasn't happened. And cost-wise, because it costs so much money to build these properties, it's never made sense because property values weren't increasing at these levels and what have you. And so, it's, it's just a number of things. Um, what would lead to a surplus in the future? A surplus, that's a big, I, like that's in California. What What's a surplus look like? I have no idea. I mean, I haven't seen a surplus since like 2007 um, in housing, 2008, nine. So it would take a lot. Um, it would take time and it would take a lot of building. And neither of those are going to um, happen quickly, in my opinion. Josh? No, same same stuff. Um, it's I don't see a solution to it because on top of that, um, California has some of the strictest environmental regulations. So you can be building in an area that you wouldn't think would be environmentally sensitive and still run into major issues. So uh, then you get the Coastal a, Commission involved, and like you know where we are here, just like so many layers, and it's yeah. all costly. Like everybody wants their piece. Yeah. So yeah. Um, another one we had start here. Josh, California versus Texas. Regarding related housing costs and lifestyles, why would one transition to and from the either location? So this is an interesting question because, you know, the California Association of Realtors, they probably still have it on their website. I'm sorry, the National Association of Realtors. So if you go to nar.org, they have this box on their website. You have to kind of dig to find it. But it showed you could put in your state or a state and it would show you where the most people were leaving your state and going to. So migrating from your state, going to another state. And then it would also show you 
which state was giving you the most people um, with regards to migration coming back into the state. And believe it or not, the most people were leaving California and going to Texas. But guess where Texas was sending the most people? Back to California. So interesting question. Uh, but Josh, when you when you think of these things, why do you think people leave one and head to another and vice versa? Let me give you an example. And I probably told this one on the show here before. My buddy, um, one of my best friends from college, who's our point guard, he lives in Fort Worth and he has a brand new condo, brand new, it's probably two, three years old now. And I'm like, condo? And he says, well, stay with us. And come. Like, well, you got a little condo. We can't all just shack up in there. He goes, no, my condo is 3,000 square feet. So my house is 1,700 square feet. His condo is 3,000 square feet. His condo is worth about a third of what mine is. And it is beautiful, like beautiful. Any one of us would be happy to live there. Um, and when we come down to it, he goes, listen, dude, he goes, I make good money. I got no state income tax. If I were in California, it's about thirty to forty thousand dollars I'd be paying to the state that I don't so, pay here. So you've listed property was less expensive. You get more bang yep. for your buck. No yep. state income taxes, right? Yep. So those are a couple. So now you flip over to the other side and we go, well, what are your property taxes on this thing? So places assessed at like a little less than 600. Let's make it easy and say at 600 and his property taxes were over two and a half, but close to two and a half. So he was paying $15,000 a year in property taxes, which will continue going up. I'll bet in the year since I've been out there visiting, the place is worth 70 grand more. So again, another two, $3,000 more, more in, in property taxes on it. So the difference is if I do my retirement planning right and my taxable income decreases in retirement, I'm not paying a bunch to the state and I still have my tiny little low taxes that are based on when I bought my house in 2003. His will continue going up. So he has to account for probably $20,000 a year of property taxes in retirement where I don't. And my planning, my retirement planning and when what is tax deferred, tax free will dictate whether I come out ahead or not. My feeling when we went out there and looked at it, super cool. Fort Worth is an awesome city. There's some really cool stuff. For me to move, the area that we would want to be in is still one three, one four. So double his cost. So now you're talking thirty to forty thousand dollars a year for property taxes in retirement. And it's just, it's not California. Like I, yeah. I tell everyone, everything bad that people tell you about California is 100% true. Everything that people tell you is awesome about California is 200% true. So it's a tough equation. So I'm going to give, I'm going to go a different direction with that question. So Josh mentioned all the, the tax and housing reasons. And then that's what the housing costs was, was about. Let's talk about lifestyles. You would move to California for the weather. If you like more, you know, uh, less humidity. You don't like rain. Southern California is fantastic. That's why I'm still here. Um, I'm also here because I live near the beach. I can go surf in the morning if I want. I can go ski in the afternoon. I got hikes near me. I've got, I mean, there's a lot to do, right? There's always things. I got three kids. It's really easy to entertain kids because there's so much to do. If I lived, you know, depending on where you live in Texas, might be rural, might be, you know, maybe you're in Dallas or Fort Worth or whatever and have access to that. But California offers a lot of that. So that's some of the benefit there. But the grass isn't always greener, right? It's not always better just because one reason or another. Um, but people move, move for political reasons and taxes, like Josh mentioned. So those are some of the reasons that people go back and forth. But I can tell you, I've had a buddy. Uh, he, he went to Austin, bought a house in Austin. Um, new construction. It was like the 
premier house on the lot there. I forget what he paid for it. He lasted six months. He kept the house, rented it out, moved back to California, and he rents in my neighborhood. So he was like, I couldn't do it. He was like, it was too hot, too humid, you know, everything that people complain about in Texas, you know, and he complained about leaving California or all the things in California, but he still came back. So to each his own, that's what you got to go. Um, let's see here. So we're rapid, we're at hour 55 in at the moment. Uh, so I'm going to do what I normally do. We're at 202 likes, guys. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to ask that you hit the like button there. Um, if you found any value tonight, if you've uh, been with us, gained any any knowledge, any information, you appreciate us, you like Josh's new melon hat, matching the shirt, like my shirt, you know, I, I'm going to wear it every Wednesday now. I'm, gonna, I'm like Steve Jobs. I just got a hundred of these and I just wear them every day. That means I'm going to have to get a black hat to go with my black shirt. And then if you get, we get gray shirts and then we get gray, it's going to be a never ending cycle. Yeah, there you go. You know, you could be the matchy matchy of the of the deal. Uh, but no, I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning. What do you guys want us to talk about on the podcast? What do you want to hear more of on here? Is there, you know, because a lot of times we answer questions and that's great, but that only benefits maybe a portion of the people on here because it's their question and maybe you're not in that point or in that spot. But if there's something you want to do a deep dive in, on a podcast and it could be encompassing and get, you know, uh, educate more people. That's what we want to hear. So if there's something you guys want us to talk about, I'd love to hear it. Um, Josh, anything else? I mean, a lot of you guys have reached out the podcast, you know about it, listen to it every Tuesday episode covering something different, you know, a deep dive into a topic every Friday. We're putting this on there for you guys to listen to in its entirety. So that's helpful. Uh, in addition to that, Josh, we've talked about, you know, we have people reaching out now asking us about consultations and do you talk, do you, you know, walk people through the buying process? And for me, it's always been kind of one of those things that's hard to touch on because I've always want, been wanting to educate people through here, right? And provide information. But what I found out is a lot of people, ask me for my advice um, and then go use somebody else to do the information or their buddy or whatever. Maybe they're not in my market at all. And I can't really, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for them to use me. So Josh, we're going to do this. We're going to put this up here guys. So Josh and I are going to do consultations. If you want to have a consultation, you can reach out at those links there. I'll leave them out there through the end of the show. It's a way to get your questions answered in more detail um, here in the state of California, if you do a consultation with me, you end up using me for whatever reason, you get your money back. So it's it's really um, simple on that front. But it's more there to save us our time uh, because we're spending a lot of time answering calls, answering emails, and not really getting anything um, you know out of it financially. And yet it's costing us a lot of time to do it. So hopefully that's helpful. Josh, anything you want to add here as we exit tonight? We had some important stuff. Um, we did. Jeb, we have some folks that want to know how they buy the shirt, Jeb. So you're going to have to start a, a store. Oh, man, I don't have a merch store. store. I've got a bunch of shirts here in my office. Though. I've got like 20-something shirts over here sitting in a box that I've done nothing with at the moment. So uh, how about this? Next week, I will have something where I can put that up for you guys. Uh, but next week, again, tune in because I'm going to be talking to agents this week about markets, about what they're doing, what they're seeing, what they've done to help offers get accepted, all of these things that you guys can benefit from. I did this last year. It's really good stuff. So 
hopefully you guys find it beneficial. Jeb, Josh. I have a I have a crazy idea, and let's see right. what these guys think about this. You, no one took us up on using Volley to send us messages. Yeah. What if you got a list of of ten or twelve of your best friends in the Buffini group in different parts of the country and did a quick Volley with them? Send them a quick. Give me five minutes on your market. We could throw that up and and play it for everyone because we do. We are we are Southern California no, centric, but that's, that's I, I think that might be good if everyone would be willing, or if a bunch of people would be willing to do that. And share I can definitely do that. Yep, I I will do that. I will. Um, that'll be good stuff. So that's a good good good. Uh, we could have done that off air, but yeah, no, that's good. So you guys know that that might be coming. Uh, I'll try to get people to do that. But anyway, two hours, guys. Thank you. We'll be back next Wednesday answering your questions, providing value, providing, you know, um, education. So if uh, you wouldn't mind, hit the thumbs up, follow us, subscribe, go to podcast, do all of that fun stuff. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.